The hosts for The Art of Aging will be recording via Zoom until it is safe to return to the studio. The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Hi, Beth. Today, I understand we're going to meet a couple who are both United Church of Christ pastors. I wonder if you could share how you chose their story as a topic for this, The Art of Aging. Sure, John. Reverend Scott and Reverend Karen Griswold are both colleagues of mine. The three of us were at a conference last February when we can meet in person. Remember what that was like? You could go to conferences. And, and before it got started, Scott came across the room and said hi. And he shared with me that he had recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he went on to share a little bit more and, and talked about how his diagnosis and his understanding of Alzheimer's was coming an important part of his ministry. Fast forward several weeks and Eric and I were talking about potential topics for this podcast. And I, I said, you know, it might be helpful for us to hear from Scott and Karen Griswold about their experiences. We are honored that they are willing to share their story with us through the art of aging. Personally, I began noticing some differences with myself that I found extremely frustrating, agitating, and difficult to deal with. Some of that was my ability to preach and come up with the necessary and correct words. The other thing I noticed that's summer is that things that I was used to doing around the house were more aggravating and frustrating and difficult to do for me which caused an incident that I personally remember for me being in the backyard and getting so upset and angry with myself that I went, whoa, I think I'm losing it. Karen came to talk to me about that and very nicely said, maybe we should talk to your doctor about it. I had noticed a little bit of behavioral changes in my husband about a year prior to the incident that he talked about, about feeling very frustrated in the backyard. And, and I did wait until the next day to encounter um, that conversation. I, I did not approach Scott in the middle of a time when he was very upset or frustrated. I don't think that's a great time to encounter something like that, a, a type of discussion like that. So we waited until he was uh, much calmer. But I had noticed little things the year prior to that. Occasionally the freezer door would be left open. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and the faucet would still be running. And I noticed the agitation began to increase and Scott having the inability to be kind to himself sometimes when there were problems. Um, he tends to be very hard on himself, but he did feel like this project was something simple that he should have been able to do. I have a best friend that is a really good support system for me, and I did say something to her 
about three months prior to this. And she said, you know, I don't know much about this subject, but I do know the sooner the better. And the words, the sooner the better, weighed on me. And so when I was able to talk with Scott, I was blessed with the fact that Scott is pretty open-minded with things like this, a human behavior and what was really going on. And he knew himself, he had kind of been at the end of his rope with what was going on with him. And we are very fortunate that his primary care physician is someone that he has been with for t over 20 years and someone that he trusts. So it was a great place to start. So I made an initial appointment to go in and talk with the doctor. And the first thing we did was those standard cognitive tests that they normally give to everybody. He also gave me a questionnaire for me to fill out and also for me to take home and have Karen complete um, prior to the next visit. And then the second visit I came in and I had what was called an Evox memory testing. It's something that a doctor can perform in his or her own office and be evaluated by an outside neurologist. On the third appointment, Karen and I went in together and doctor came in and sat down with us and showed us in the color coding what was strong, what was weak, and where stress played a role in decreasing certain abilities. Diagnosis, dementia, Alzheimer's. That was a bit shocking news to receive. And the doctor prescribed one of the first medications that you can take for it. It's a medication to help you with the symptoms, but it is not a medication that is a cure for it because there is no cure at this point. I think it was about two or three weeks later, I had my normal quarterly visit with the doctor and went in with a little bit of a skepticism saying, you know, that seemed like an awfully quick diagnosis for a 45-minute test. And, you know, are, are we sure about this? And he got the results out again, and we went over them, and he assured me that this is pretty much what it is. We had about six weeks where it was difficult for us. Um, of course, you're trying to wrap your head around this new diagnosis what it means for your life and how your life is going to change. So we kept it between us for a little bit and then we started to share it with our children and my parents who are still living. And we began to see that support grow and grow. And then he was able to preach it from the pulpit. And of course, when I talked about it from the pulpit, it was able to also touch other people who I never really knew had anything wrong with them, but they were able to share their own personal journey with me and their experiences with dementia. 
I think back to the point when Scott was saying he was trying to process all of this and went back to his doctor and said, are you sure this is really what's going on? That he was able to feel that sense of denial rise up in him and he understands as he goes forward with ministry that this is something that does happen with folks. It happened with him. One of the th- interesting aspects of this is this area of denial. Most of the people had questions concerning friends who they were a little nervous to drive with anymore. And so to be able to talk to them about that same situation and that feeling that I had, but the being able to give them the encouragement they need to go and talk to someone and really just get the idea that the sooner the better really works. Medication is very beneficial and that there's no harm whatsoever to your pride if you go to your doctor to seek assistance. Being someone who's on the outside looking in, in Scott's world, I'm part of it, but I'm not experiencing everything that he is. I need time to step back and talk also to people because I am part of being a caregiver and what that looks like in taking care of my needs and keeping me calm also is important in looking at the situation in the middle of a a time where he might be feeling very frustrated with himself. All of that support really gives me the skill that I need to be calm with, you know, in the situation within our home or wherever he might be experiencing some trouble. One of the things I did in this very early stage is begin looking online and I came across um, the Miami Valley Alzheimer's Association. And one of the first things that they do on their website is say, please join us. Where can you volunteer? I thought, ooh, Speakers Bureau. The one thing that has been very helpful to Scott is he's still able to be engaged with folks to a point where he's added the work he's done with the Alzheimer's Association. So he's actually adding things instead of taking it a little bit easier which would be, you would, you would think maybe would be a normal thing to do, but he has been adding. And his doctor said that is good for brain stimulation. You know, add, but don't overwhelm. And I think that's where, that's the pivotal point that I can be in his life, in Scott's life, is to say, is there too much on your plate? Is all of this going to be overwhelming? Where do we need to choose what you think that you need to do now or push out a month or something like that. So where do we go with this um, into now my second year of realizing I'm in this first stage? And I have gone on to the second medication that is available for um, treating the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And To be honest with you, those are the only two medications available, and they've been available for 18 years, and they're looking for new solutions and have yet to come up with anything. And uh, as my doctor has told me, I can remain in this stage for 
a long time. It just is a disease that treats everybody differently. There's no standard to it. Some people can transgress very quickly and others just stay. So we just don't know. But the best thing you can do is stay active. Those word searchers, that's one of the first things the doctor said to do was do word searches and crossword puzzles, eye stimulation, keeping your eyes moving all the time. One of the things I've noticed is um, reading might have become a little bit difficult for me. So I've gone to audio, and that's great. And sometimes when I'm doing audio, I'll have the book in front of me and do both just to kind of see where, where I'm going or having a Kindle in front of me and I can highlight the parts of an audio book that I enjoy. One of the things that they tell you is your long-term memory is wonderful and your ability to maintain the music you enjoy retains. And some people have been building artistic skills that they've never had before. I don't know if that's going to happen to me, but I do know the music that I enjoy. Part of my ordination process, I did an extended unit of clinical pastoral education at a United Church Homes home, and it was a multi-tiered level facility where there was also a memory care unit. And I watched these folks um, put these headphones on and engage in listening to the music and watching their bodies sway back and forth and how music that they heard maybe as a teenager or as a child, young child, or maybe a hymn, how it would just spark something in them. You saw them come alive. Their bodies were swaying back and forth and they were smiling and were able to sing some of the words. People have to realize nowadays that dementia care expenses are on the rise. People are living longer. And how are we going to take care of this? And for some folks in the later second and third stages of the disease, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week proposition for family members. And it requires a great deal of expense and care. So I wanted to think about how I could best prepare for all of this. Reverend Griswold has decided to do week-long retreats with family members who will be supporting him as his Alzheimer's progresses. He hopes that by documenting these experiences, he can provide insight for others who are facing the same challenges. The idea is, number one, it would provide an opportunity for me to select five or six family members and, quote, future caregivers and have an experience together one-on-one talking about past memories, what we're dealing with now in the present that would be an enjoyable experience that we could do together to create a future memory, and then talk about the often unsaid conversation of how are we going to deal with me or anyone else in the future when it comes to providing care for people with dementia. The second aspect is to document 
this entire experience to let people know that this is not the end-all to the end-all. One of those times would be for me to go along and maybe with our oldest grandchild also. His doctor has agreed to do the brain mapping after these adventures. We wanted to see what all of the stimulation would do. And Scott talks about it being a legacy that he leaves not only for us, his family, but for the future, for folks that are in the doctor's office tomorrow getting this diagnosis, and for their family and their caregivers. Um, information that can be used throughout you know, the time that Scott's life and, and on through our grandchildren's lives, and on and on. But I still have those agitating moments, those frustrations. Can I step back and look at a bigger picture and with courage try to seek the help that I need in those moments? And then um, just say, it's going to be okay. The realization that, number one, life is a struggle. I don't care who you are. And you have to realize that I do make mistakes. I have to be patient with myself. And just as important, I need to forgive myself. And those are the parts I have to keep in front of me all the time. Doesn't work all the time, does it, Karen? Earlier today was a struggle for about 10 minutes. Just daily struggles. We have them. But we are trying to gather the strength and trying to look for support, find it, and be that support. We're not in it alone. We know where we can turn, and we know that we're going to get the help that we need and maybe in the process help others. It's never comfortable opening yourself up to be vulnerable, but it is valuable, and that's what we've learned. Over time, we'll be checking back with the Griswolds about Scott's experiences doing retreats with family members what he and Karen learned, and how this may be helpful to others who are going through a similar journey. Next, we are going to meet Susan, an author and poet who is coping with memory loss. Susan shares a poem, Extra People in the House, which describes an experience she has had recently. This interview was conducted by journalist Diane Chittister. So I want to start off, Susan, and say how I know you which is as a writer. You've published a novel, you've published many poems and journals, poetry journals. You taught creative writing for quite a few years at, at a college. So being a writer is pretty, pretty much at the core of who you are, I think. Is that true? Most of the time. Okay. Most of the time. <laughs> Most Got of it. the time. There's other times when <clears throat> I can't get back there. I also know you as someone who the last couple years has been dealing with short-term memory loss and you presented to our writing group, a group that you and I are both in, you presented a poem that you wrote about that experience of having memory loss and Mm -hmm. we were kind of blown away by this poem because it seemed very powerful. So first of all to have you read the poem. Extra people in the house. I heard you this morning, or felt your presence. Someone was here, not just us two. A memory, or an illusion, someone in the house walking around, 
not just us two, but memory said, the children are here, remember? They came last night, last Christmas, or last summer, but they left again. They left again. There you go. And memory knows well, this is early spring. No one belongs here but us two. The kids should be home coloring eggs. Odd sensation, knowing the kids are here, walking and tiptoeing softly downstairs, preparing for school and work. Two kinds of knowing, one in the sensible mind, the other a sensation in the body. Somewhere deep in the torso, moving under the heart, the lungs, the ribcage. I mean, knowing is a physical experience, even, no, especially when you have two things busy contradicting each other. Every morning I wake certain there are more people in the house than I expected. I get up and dress, ready to face the others, and you say, they are not here. We look in the closet, spy through the front door window, listen for young folks' voices, take a deep breath of confusion, and we know we are living with memory loss. Short term, because extra friends are nearby with a correct response. Well, what is it like to you to read that right now? Well, I've had that experience of waking up and saying, who is it that's here? Okay. Who is it that's due today? Where are we going? What's, you know? Yeah. There's sort of my memory for who's coming and who's going is shaky a lot. I have sort of, I think, put together plans and conversations and, you know, with people and friends that I want to mm-hmm. wanna meet. And once I start doing that, I'm more in the world. And I was thinking this morning, your memory, literally, the words in your head vanish. And you, you just kind of have to sort of say, oh, there they go again. <laughs> sure. They'll come back, and they do. It makes you anxious. Sure. It makes you feel like you're going to be foolish in the next mm-hmm. 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And So you're communicating to people something about what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Does that feel like a good thing to you? I mean, to be able to communicate in that way? Well, when I communicate with people about that experience, I usually find somebody who's had it. I I talked to both my parents about it before they died. Uh At least that's the the way I remember it. And and that was useful. Mm -hmm. That was good. And I talked to my siblings, you know, my brothers and my sister. And You don't need to be so scared of it. I really want to thank Susan for sharing her poem along with her conversation with her friend Diane. In our next episode, we will celebrate Black History Month by interviewing Dr. John Fleming, who has helped found six museums covering Black history, civil rights, the history of African-American music, and others. We will hear about his personal journey in the second of our Aging Hero series. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar Fellow Eric Johnson.